Well, hello, good morning. Let me add my welcome to the one I hope you just received. Good morning. Yeah, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I'm so glad to be able to open God's Word with you today. We find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19 and reading through verse 31. So Luke 16, 19 through 31. This is God's word. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who had feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham! Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Flannery O'Connor's writing. Southern American author, most known for her short stories, but she would write stories about, most often about humanity's need for grace. And the way that she would communicate was often by depicting 
startling characters, almost grotesque. To read a Flannery O'Connor story is always to be uncomfortable. And once she was asked, why do you write characters that are so bigger than life and grotesque? And this is what she said. She said, to the heart of hearing, you shout. And to the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. That is what Jesus is doing in this story. It's important for us to see it in context. This follows the parable we heard last week. And it's a part of a much larger conversation that Jesus has been having with both his disciples and the Pharisees. It's a conversation that begins all the way back in Luke chapter 15, with Jesus eating at a table with outcasts, misfits, tax collectors, and sinners. The Pharisees see Jesus with the poor and the outcasts, and do you remember what they do? They grumble. And in response to their grumbling, Jesus tells three stories, the story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the story of the lost son. Three stories meant to communicate God's love for lost things. In each one of those stories, the lost is found in a great party results. And at the end of those stories, there's another lost son. It's the elder son who's outside of the party, remember. And the father is trying to beckon that son in, saying, everything I have is ours. Isn't it right to celebrate? Your brother was lost, and it's like he's been risen from the grave. Shouldn't we celebrate when lost things are found? After that parable, Jesus turns to his disciples and he teaches them about what our possessions in this world are for. That was last week. That we're to use our wealth, our possession, our time and our resources, which this side of heaven, the the clock is ticking on their usefulness. And so we should use them to profit eternally. In the language of the parable last week, do you remember? It's to make friends, eternal friends with our wealth. And attending that teaching was a warning about money, how it's a great tool, but a harsh God. They're still at the table. So this is what you need to remember. They're still at the table with the tax collectors and sinners Pharisees are still there too. The Pharisees hear the parable about money. And in our text, this is their response. Uh, In verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and ridiculed Jesus. The Pharisees loved money. 
They were addicted to the status and prestige that money brings. They think that their money is a blessing from God in response to their righteousness. And we may think that that's bad theology, but I wonder if we subtly believe such things too. That those who are well off are blessed. And those who don't have much aren't. Well, Jesus firmly rebukes that kind of thinking. He rebukes the Pharisees for their love of money, their determination to use it to exalt themselves, and ultimately, he rebukes them for ignoring the Old Testament's authority because they should know better. That's the context for the rich man in Lazarus. What Jesus has been talking about is loving the poor and the outcast, using our resources to make a space for them at the table, making eternal friends. He's been talking about how we shouldn't love money, how we shouldn't think that it's the thing that gives us status or honor, and that the Old Testament is pretty clear about this. And all of these themes that Jesus has been building on, they're all woven into the climax of this discussion, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You have the rich man's love of money. Talk about somebody who doesn't use his stuff to make friends. His self-importance, even in Hades, he's proud. And his rejection of divine revelation. This is Jesus's last-ditch effort to get to the Pharisees' heart in this scene. And for the almost blind, you draw in large and startling figures. And so he tells a story, and he sets up these contrasts between the rich man and Lazarus. And the contrasts are vivid and striking. The rich man dresses in purple, which is a sign of great wealth in the ancient world. A sign of royalty. There were only two ways to make purple cloth. It was very, very rare. And so to wear purple all the time, you must be a very proud and spectacularly wealthy man. Your heart was to tell the world just how wealthy you were. It said that he also wore fine linen. Fine linen is usually used for undergarments. It is almost as if Jesus is saying, tongue firmly planted in his cheek, even his underoos were fancy. We might say that this man was indulgent all the way through. He lived in luxury every day. He ate sumptuously, it says. Each meal multi-course with servants serving him fine wine. In contrast, you have the poverty of Lazarus. We should notice that Lazarus is named He is the only character in any of Jesus' parables to be named. 
Notice that the rich man is not named. To be named in the ancient world is to have significance. It's to be somebody. Jesus is trying to hint where this story is going. Lazarus is somebody known by God, meant to be noticed by us. The rich man, however, for all of his riches, all of his money, all of his fancy underwear, is just a rich man. Not to be noticed in much. Not even given the dignity of a name. Lazarus' name is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Eliezer. Eliezer means the one who God helps. And you hear that at the beginning of the parable, and you're like, good grief. If this is the man who God helps... I wonder what it's like to be the man that God doesn't help. And so the name, when it's introduced, first causes a disparring note. How can this mean be the man who God helps when he is sore, so broken, poor, about to die? Well, you have to read the rest of the story. Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate. Notice that he was laid the implication is that he was so ill that he had to be carried there day in and day out. You have to remember there were no social services or clinics. So the accepted accepted custom was to bring the poor to the home of the richest people because it was accepted that it was a part of the wealthy's social, cultural responsibility to use some of their excess to care for those who were truly in need. In biblical symbolism, the gate is thought to be the place where justice is done and carried out for the poor. And so in Amos chapter 5, God says, hate evil and love good, establish justice at the gate. Justice done at the gate is a sign of Israel's loyalty to God in the Old Testament. But the gate here, rather, uh, rather than being a place of justice and help, was simply a barrier. It was used by the rich man to keep the needy, like Lazarus, conveniently out there. It's not that the rich man is ignorant of Lazarus' condition. We know from verse 24 that he recognizes him. He knew him. How couldn't he? It's, he's by the gate. He goes in and out of that gate every day, however many times a day. He saw the need and did nothing. The rich man clearly ignores the need on his doorstep. Even his dogs are moved by Lazarus's situation. And when you think of dogs, dogs weren't kept as pets in the ancient world. These were not labradoodles or bernadoodles. They were not doodles of any kind. These were either dogs were either wild dogs, think like dingoes, 
or they were guard dogs. And if guard dogs were well cared for, they ate the scraps from someone's table. Lazarus wants those scraps. It gives you a sense of how he feels about himself. He only has the dignity of a dog. And the rich man, in denying him what he freely gives to his dog, dogs sees him as even less than that. It makes you uncomfortable. It's meant to. Lazarus's body was littered with sickness, but the rich man's heart was in a far worse state, lacking basic compassion, a heart that was unfeeling, deeply sick. And as sad as Lazarus's situation is, we'll see that the rich man is in far graver danger. Well, the time came for both of them to die. And we're told that the rich man had a burial, likely in his own grave and tomb. Lazarus died, and there's no mention of a funeral or burial. He was most likely put in a common grave if he was buried at all. The final indignity, this side of heaven. But at this point, the roles begin to reverse. We see the angels of the Lord tend to Lazarus and carry him not to another man's gate, but to Abraham's bosom, his side. Why Abraham? Well, Abraham is the friend of God, the father of the Jewish people. And I think we're to see him at the head of the messianic banquet. This language of Lazarus being at the bosom of Abraham I think we're to think of a meal. Do you remember how John in in the Last Supper is described as leaning upon Jesus's breast because of how they would sit around a table? And so here is Lazarus lifted up, brought hungry, now fed at the place of honor at the messianic banquet by the father of his people, given the seed of honor. Clearly, a man's earthly condition is no index for their state in the sight of God. And while he received little help from those on earth, God, in the end, was his helper. And I guess the only way you can assess who the man is, who God helps, is to wade into eternity. And what of the rich man? Despite all of his wealth, blessing, and fancy underwear, and the honor it temporarily afforded him, he ends up in Hades, 
where he's in torment. It's hard to know why Jesus chose to use the word Hades rather than the words he normally uses for hell. It's hard to push the point about how much we should learn about the afterlife from a parable like this. We should say that this is certainly not where the rich man wants to be. Lazarus is in the place of healing and help. He's among the friends of God, welcomed into the dwellings of the friends of God. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And the rich man, who so much of his life looked down on Lazarus, must now look up at him. And the reversal is complete. And that is when the rich man speaks. Up to this point in the story, there's been no dialogue. In verse 24, he speaks, and here's the question at the heart of our lesson. What would you expect the rich man to say at this juncture? You've read the narrative with me. Man wakes up in Hades and sees Abraham and Lazarus a long way off. What would you expect him to say? One of the problems we have in reading the Bible is that we've become superficially familiar with it. As we've been saying, we lose the shock of the parables. We don't hear the shock that they managed to evoke in those who first heard them. And the only way I can get at the shock that this parable is meant to evoke in us is to ask the question, what would you expect him to say? Oh my, didn't I get that one wrong? Oh no, life wasn't about fancy underwear. Oh Lazarus, I'm sorry. Oh God, I'm sorry. I wish I could take it back. But that's not what he says. He says astonishing things. And the first thing that astonishes me is what he doesn't say. And the first time somebody pointed it out to me, it changed the way that I read this parable forever. Do you know what he doesn't ask for? He doesn't ask to get out. He never asks to get out. He's just trying to get Lazarus to come in. And he still, he won't speak to Lazarus himself. He talks to Abraham and he's still treating Lazarus like he's his menial servant. Asking him to come and give him a drink. The very thing that he wouldn't do to Lazarus while he was on earth. Clearly, the suffering of Hades has done nothing to dull his sense of self-importance. The hardness of the human heart on display. And whatever we might discern about what happens after this life from this parable... At least we can say this, that hell is not made up of people who are thoroughly sorry for their sins and wish to repent. Only God won't let them. 
It is made up of people who are like this rich man who still think they are at the center of the universe. Well, Abraham will have nothing of it. And he speaks of a great chasm that's fixed, that can't be breached. A chasm that we've just seen has been fixed by the heart of the rich man himself. Who at still at this point is without remorse. Though he is thinking about others at this point. Though not Lazarus. If he can't be relieved, perhaps his family can be spared. He says, will you send somebody to my brothers and sisters? Will you send Lazarus to my brothers and my sisters? It seemed altruistic, but the rich man is still asking for Lazarus to be sent. If he's not going to be my table waiter, maybe he can still serve as my errand boy. And Abraham says, there's no need to send anyone. They have Moses and the prophets. They have enough. In other words, you need to hear what Abraham is saying. He says, if anyone is surprised by what just happened in this situation, they haven't read their Bibles. And somewhere along the way, Though you claim to be a follower of Israel's God, you had lost the narrative. They had enough. But the rich man shows his arrogance one more time. He determines on the terms of which they're warned. Moses and prophets are not enough, he says. They... He wants his, his, his Scrooge and Marley moment. He's like, I need the ghost of Christmas, present, past, and future. Lazarus cast in that role. Send him to my brothers and sisters because Moses and the prophets aren't enough. Only a resurrection will do. And the last verse of our text is full of meaning. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they can be, be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Oh my. The last sentence is like the crashing chord on an organ um, containing several different notes, including deep irony. Because Luke knows where his book is going. We know where his book is going. Someone will rise from the dead. And many will still not believe. That was true when Jesus rose from the dead, but a different Lazarus, who Jesus brought from the dead. In John 11... God brings him back from the dead and still many won't believe. And even one more hint. I think that there's references here back to the parable of the prodigal son. Remember how the younger son's redemption was described? 
as if he had risen from the dead. And so remember where they're at. They're still, Jesus is telling this story around a table of outcasts, misfits, and poor who have been drawn to him. And he's saying, it's like they've been raised from the dead. And Pharisees, you don't see it. And Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. And you don't see it. And I'm going to be raised from the dead. And there's no guarantee that you'll see it. Resurrection is happening all around them. It's happening in the person of Jesus. The problem is not with the message. It's with the audience. Mic drop. Okay. That's a tough story. I wonder what the health and wealth guys do with that story. They don't preach it. I checked. I was like, I'd love to hear them preach on this. It's just really hard to square with have your best life now theology. And so it's avoided. What's interesting is by contrast, the ancient, ancient church loved this story. You go to the passages, this is what they preached all the time. It was understood by the ancient church to be good news. A paradigmatic example of what made the way of Jesus distinct. Because it wasn't just a harsh word of warning from Jesus. It is that. But for the Lazaruses of the world. For the, for the people around the table with Jesus that day, it was grace. A sense that this world is not all that there is. A sense that there is help beyond this world. It's a word that lifted up and emboldened and transformed the poor. And for the Pharisees who loved money, it was grace for them too. Because it was a story sharp enough to break up the hardened ground and their barren lives so they might eventually produce fruit of repentance and love and mercy and justice. And so it's a story full of God's grace to everybody. And we need stories like this because we live in a world that tells us all the time, you know what's awesome? To dress in purple. To wear fancy underwear. (laughs) Seriously. To fulfill and satiate every desire. It's the good life. It takes a tremendous amount of intentionality to push back On all of that. The most important lesson from the parable is a warning about money. Wealth calcified this man's heart. It should be said that wealth doesn't always do that. Thank God for rich people. You know why this church and most churches exist? Because four people give a lot of money. The rest of us give very little. 
<laughs> Thank you, rich people, <laughs> for caring for our church. Jesus does not condemn the rich as such. Jesus is not a Marxist revolutionary, no matter how much our contemporaries want him to be. Jesus does not idolize the rich. He does not, ro- or he, uh, he, and he does not romanticize the poor. In the end, there's a contrast between one rich figure and another one in this parable. Abraham himself was very rich. Lazarus was taken from the gate of one wicked rich man and taken to the side of one faithful rich man who used his wealth as a steward of God's kingdom to bless the man of faith. Augustine, preaching on this passage many centuries ago, said this, The rich should not fear wealth, but greed. They should not be afraid of goods, but of greed. Let them possess wealth like Abraham, therefore, and let them possess it by faith. Let them possess it and not be possessed by it. It's good preaching from Augustine. How do we determine whether we are possessed by it or not? And maybe the teaching of our text is that the true test is our sensitivity to the poverty and pain and need that we see around us. A heart unwilling to help others because it might be too risky or they might not deserve it or it might cost too much is a heart unwilling to recognize the desperate help we ourselves have needed from God. Because beneath the greed in this man was pride. He didn't see his own need for forgiveness and grace. The answer then to the parable is to help others out of a sense of our own desperate need for God. Because bank accounts aside, we are all poor and sick and needy. And the good news is that God is Lazarus, the God who helps. And because he has helped us in the person of Jesus, we are freed to help others. You can go to this parable and you can, and people ask all kinds of questions. Most of them are about the afterlife. But this parable is not designed to answer our questions about the afterlife. It's designed to ask a different set of questions. And the question it's designed to get us to ask is this Who is the Lazarus at my gate? Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the God who helps. Thank you so much for your mercy and grace given to us in Christ Jesus. When we were laid at your gate, 
you not only helped, but you gave up all of your wealth. And you became poor so that we, through your poverty, might become rich. You have met our needs in Jesus. And we are rich because of you. And now we're given the task out of this sense of felt need, the great joy that we have in the gospel, to, to, to learn over time to be people of mercy and justice, love, generosity, hope, healing. Help us to see who you might be sending our way to help. Maybe they're closer than we thought. (laughs) The wife we've been neglecting. The husband we've been emotionally (laughs) stiff-arming. The kid who needs our attention. The widow next door. Help us to see whom you might be sending our way, Jesus. And help us to welcome them as if they were you. We give you praise and thanks this day. In Christ's name, amen.